Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Can mainstream science explain the paranormal? Do the many gadgets now used in paranormal research really mean anything? How can you tell when an event is really paranormal? Hey there, and welcome to the 532nd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and those timely questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. And this evening we bring you a look at ghosts through the eyes of one of the, most, one of the world's most prominent parapsychologists, and um, one who straddles both the academic and popular aspects of uh, ghost research. So you're welcome to call in the number this evening, 401-766-1240, or anywhere from the U.S. and Canada, uh, 800-449-1240. Kieran O'Keefe is a British parapsychologist and forensic psychologist well known for his appearances on the National Geographic Channel with the UK television series Most Haunted and in other media. He earned his doctorate at the University of Hertfordshire in 2005 under the supervision of, among other people, Dr. Richard Wiseman, a well-known debunker of paranormal phenomena. Dr. O'Keefe's academic credentials are many and he has been an active paranormal researcher all along. Currently, he is a research associate at L'Université de Toulouse 2 in France, and uh, his website is theparapsychologist.com. And now, after all that lovely French, Dr. Kieran O'Keefe, <laughs> welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Good evening, gentlemen. How are you? Uh, not too bad, not too bad for a Monday. All right, so let's begin with a uh, broad question, and uh, take as long as you need to answer it. So, what is the paranormal, and uh, what is your overall view of it? Ah, that's a, um, it's an interesting question, possibly a philosophical question, but perhaps... We like philosophy. Indeed we do. <laughs> Except for Descartes. <laughs> Best to start maybe with, rather, what is the paranormal, what is parapsychology, and begin from that standpoint, which mm -hmm. is, of course, is where I'm coming from. Parapsychology, of course, is the scientific study of the paranormal, very, gen very generally speaking, and in parapsychology, uh, you tend to cover one of three main areas, either ESP, it's extrasensory perception, uh, which covers telepathy, precognition or clairvoyance, or PK, psychokinesis, um, or the third area that's covered in parapsychology is uh, studies of survival, which could be uh, haunting phenomena or mediumship phenomena, anything really that indicates some sort of survival after death. And those are the three areas that parapsychology tends to cover. And within the world today, there are probably only, well, I would say less than 100 qualified parapsychologists, i.e. those that are qualified to PhD level. And out of those 100, only a handful would be looking at survival phenomena, so haunting phenomena, ghostly stuff, or mediumship. The rest of parapsychologists would be doing laboratory work looking at ESP or PK. Um, and I say that and kind of define that at the outset because I'm a parapsychologist, so I'm approaching it from scientific point of view, but also because to make your listeners realize that it's quite a restricted viewpoint uh, on what the paranormal is um, because there's, of course, lots of phenomena that can occur outside of what parapsychology defines. Um, so you can have things like alien abduction and UFO phenomena, which we could also regard as the paranormal. But generally, parapsychology restrict, restricts itself to those three areas and also kind of brings into question 
like I said, you know, it's a philosophical thing. Um, parapsychologists also like to say, well, perhaps we're looking at phenomena that science doesn't yet have an explanation for, uh, which kind of begs a philosophical, if not a, a more open definition of the paranormal. Indeed. All right, so how uh, would you determine that a case is uh, genuinely paranormal as opposed to something else? Um, if we're just, let's just talk about ghostly phenomena, okay. so uh, haunting, haunting experiences. Um, I would approach it in a very particular way, um, and perhaps it's best being clear as well with your listeners within parapsychology. Um, there are very, very few parapsychologists that would even get involved in field investigations of haunting experiences. Mm -hmm. Generally, parapsychologists, you'll find them involved in laboratory work, often university-based, but they wouldn't necessarily step out of the university department or laboratory, and they certainly wouldn't get involved in ghost investigations. It's only because as a boy was fascinated by uh, Ghostbusters and that sort of thing that I, <laughs> <laughs> I ended up... Um, having a you know a, a boyhood hobby of ghost hunting and then making a career as a parapsychologist and have kind of, kind of combined the two so i end up ghost hunting as well as doing the lab work but in terms of how do i look at cases and how do i how would i decide if there's a if there's a genuine case again that's that's quite tough um normally it would be a checklist type approach so if if there's a um, a ghost case, um, I go into it based on the person's experiences that they've had. There would be a, a like a possible cause, so a likely cause of what might be going on, based on their description of their experience and also maybe environmental stuff that's going on uh, in the area. And I have a checklist. Uh, of possible theories, possible explanations for their experience. And if I can go through and discount each of those explanations, uh, and so, for example, uh, a lot of people are fascinated by the idea of electromagnetic fields and how that can uh, affect the brain in such a way that it can cause a hallucination and give you an apparent ghostly experience. If I could discount the possibility that there's any EMF uh, explanation for what's going on then I would cross that off the list and I'd have a I'd go down and cross off each of these natural explanations until I get to the end and if at the very end I've crossed off all the other explanations then at the very end there'd be a paranormal explanation and certainly in a ghostly case the most likely explanation would be that it's a ghost but I'm not saying necessarily what a ghost is, but it's certainly something paranormal if it, if it was left unchecked at the end of that list. Yes, well, that, the, what the nature of uh, what a ghost might be is in our uh, future here is a question. So, so yeah. Alrighty, so we're uh, going to move on to the next question, which is, can you give, uh, give us an, uh, an example, like a, a case you have investigated over the years um, where you found something that's genuine? Quote, unquote. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes swear something genuine um, let me think of a good case yes um, there was a nightclub in northwest England um, kind of ironically called Hex Nightclub 
um, but had subsequently shut down. Is that in Liverpool? Yeah, just outside of Liverpool. I, I've, I've seen it. Oh, right. I haven't been there, but I've seen it. it, it oh, okay. It's a small world. Uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. It's a small world. Yeah, it subsequently closed down, and certainly when the phenomena had been uh, experienced by the staff there, uh, it had been closed for a number of number of months uh, when they experienced the phenomena, and it all coincided with uh, a sense that the staff had uh, reported. And I was called into the case because a local investigator had seen some CCTV footage of a fire exit doors opening of their own accord. And I was quite fortunate uh, to see that CCTV footage um, to verify that it was dubious at best as to whether there was anything paranormal going on. There were too many possibilities, too many um, hidden areas in the CCTV footage and a little bit blurry as well to tell whether or not somebody was actually faking the phenomena. Um, but over the course of uh, about eight, nine months, um, colleagues from a group called Parascience were investigating uh, this particular club and I was there on one of those occasions when the fire exit doors did actually open of their own accord. Um, there was uh, a chair wedged into the handles of the fire exit doors um, and various equipment was placed inside and outside the doors and if it hadn't have been for the chair uh, then the doors would have flung themselves open and, and literally the force in which they were pushed almost caused the uh, uh, the chair to, to fly away from or out of uh, the handles. Uh, certainly there was nobody on either side of those doors. There was no change in air pressure which might have caused uh, um, such a thing to happen. Uh, Chubb, who was the company that was responsible for making the doors, had been in touch with colleagues uh, to explain any natural phenomena that might have occurred, any, any problem with hinges etc. and they could discount possibility it was any of that. So there, again a series of checklists that occurred able to tick all of those, those off and go, at the end, we have no explanation for this. And certainly tying into the people's experiences and tying into the fact that you've got a, a location that over the course of about 15, 20 years had had a number of unexplained spontaneous fires that were not explainable by the fire service and not down to arson. Um, and then you've got this phenomenon associated with the fire exit doors. Um, the only likely explanation was that there was something paranormal going on. Um, but again, you're, you're, you're talking to me as a sceptic, which means that I'm not cynical. I'm, I'm open-minded to the possibility. But there's an example of a case where I still tell people I have no explanation for it. But to say that it's paranormal, you're pushing me into a corner and you're talking about me having conducted over, over 1,500 cases um, over the years and that's one that springs to mind mm -hmm. there may be a couple of others maximum but the rest of them I would say that there are quite normal explanations in, in terms of what's going on one explanation we've found lately is that uh, people have seen The Conjuring and other films and they want to be famous themselves <laughs> very often we'll read into situations and we waste our time trying to you know even absolutely you know, so and I'm I sure you've seen that as well yeah yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, um, it's 
it's almost there's an equivalent in forensic psychology we call it the csi effect um people seeing you know uh, csi in various crime shows on television and thinking that that's reality and kind of yeah. getting invested in the tv shows well you mentioned the conjuring but of course you know i'm i'm guilty of it myself having been part of um a paranormal tv show most haunted but yeah. any of the paranormal shows are also guilty of providing um impetus for or motivation for people wanting to have either uh, a ghost group come in and investigate their own house you know because of the excitement involved in that or uh, the local press the local media get involved in a case or which tends to happen and i've come across these cases myself and it sounds like you guys have too where people report the phenomena because they've got a high belief in this they've seen the tv shows they've seen the movies in the hope that uh, tv cameras end up in their home absolutely and uh, many years ago uh, you wouldn't see that at least in my experience although we're just discussing the uh, bridgeport poltergeist case because we're, we're friendly with the author who was writing that 1974 i don't know if, you've, if you're familiar yes. with that but yeah. um i was one of the eyewitnesses to that and have gotten involved in interviews and things which have brought back a lot of sour memories but nevertheless is very interesting but in any case uh when we're looking at that uh one of the issues we have with both academic parapsychology and what we call pop ghost research is that with the possible exception of some transpersonal psychologists and quantum physicists everybody to me at least in my experience strains and sweats to make these phenomena fit the old materialistic scientific paradigm and in yeah. our humble opinion, that's kind of intellectual cowardice because maybe the paranormal is outside mainstream science. What say you? Yes, and certainly by definition, you're talking about paranormal. You know, it's outside of, you know, what we regard as normal. So, yes, I, I would say that's one possible way of looking at it, that we're dealing with phenomena that's difficult to explain by the current rules of science current rules of physics and perhaps you know with with the advent of quantum physics there's there's a you know possible explanation within those areas although i'm not a quantum physicist so i wouldn't want to comment on that however well, um, we're not either we comment on it all the time so. <laughs> <laughs> lectured on it on saturday quantum physics there you go i'll comment on it and say yeah that could explain it yeah, um, maybe maybe not but uh um, yeah, I mean, the, the other thing, there's lots of skeptical articles out there as well explaining why quantum physics doesn't, you know, and cannot explain some of this stuff. Well, science but I don't about peer review, away, so... I don't want to take away from any of the theories that are out there. Certainly there, there are few theories that explain kind of the physical processes involved in what might be happening uh, with ghostly phenomena. But that doesn't take away from the fact that there are quite a few theories that do try and explain what's going on. So you've got various people like uh, Tyrrell back in the 60s and 70s who talked about ghosts uh, in terms of crisis apparitions. Yeah, or I, I knew him. You knew? Ah, oh, I bow down to you. <laughs> no need. Wow. I didn't know him well, but we corresponded uh, as oh, well. Yeah. Louisa Ryan, too. Oh, wow. Well, Tyrrell, for, for your listeners, in case you haven't mentioned before, the, one of the most influential books in my career is a book called Apparitions. Mine, too. Uh, yeah. 
There you go. And within that book, he, you know, he talks about the various forms of ghosts, talks about crisis apparitions, post-mortem cases, uh, experimental um, cases um, in which an experimental case is kind of where the agent, the person, is actually making an apparition of themselves appear to others. Um, and generally, Tyrrell, it's difficult to summarize all of his work, but one of the things he says is that apparition is some is like a perceptual expression of an idea, in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and I only bring it up because, you know, the point you raised about do we have... Can, can can we explain within our current scientific uh, rules what's happening with ghosts? Well, maybe we can't, but that's not to take away from people like Tyrrell and some of the other uh, theorists who looked at trace theory, for example, of which a modern version is stone tape theory. But these attempts to try and theoretically explain what ghosts might be. Um, and I think a lot of them have some uh, very good things to say. Oh, I, I agree. One of the issues is something you have already mentioned, and that's that many parapsychologists simply work in the lab mm. and uh, do not go out in the field. Uh, the, yeah. I'm thinking of PSYCOP, CSI, you know, the, the um, Committee for yes, the Scientific exactly. Investigation of Claims of the yep. Paranormal. And I belonged to that in the 70s, but I, I found, I, personally, I found them intellectually dishonest. They, they would not admit evidence outside of a very limited set of parameters and I, I, I thought that was as we said in the intro perhaps intellectual cowardice of some kind and uh, maybe that's not fair but that was my opinion so uh, I think that the fact that you go out and actually investigate things is uh, quite laudable and the, the point of view that we have and my background, my, my academic background is in philosophy and theology of all things but not in physics or in parapsychology as such, although I've taken a few courses, is uh, from being, in, as we say, in the paranormal trenches and, and trying to explain things we have seen, doing, we hope, the detective work, and investigating cases for years, not just swooping in for a few visits. Uh, there's yeah. one, probably our longest one uh, started in 1998 before Ben was even involved. You were, what, six? Yep. And uh, that's sort of the end one that, that, that we... Uh, are discussing a book about now with someone else, and that's uh, one in Central Connecticut. The listeners are familiar with it, but that that is another one that opened the eyes in the sense that. It, and I wanted to ask you this too: uh, that, that particular case began with "quote unquote" ghosts and all sorts of really bizarre time phenomena, and has ended up with UFOs in the that the entire community has noticed, and uh, the, the black helicopter thing, and then seen it with our own eyes and uh, military activity, uh, and it, it all somehow seems to be connected. Have you run into uh, pan-paranormal phenomena, as we, we call it? A, we have a number of different paranormal phenomena occurring at the same site, you mean, or same yes, area? Yes, it was seemingly unrelated, or, or in, in the same area. You can exceed eight or ten square miles. Um, not to my knowledge. I'm trying to think of some of the key cases we have uh well, i'm thinking of rendlesham forest in suffolk rendlesham forest yeah but rendlesham forest we're talking about um you know a ufo 
Well, yes, that, that's the, that's the, the best known phenomenon uh, well, I mean, there. But we were there in 2012. There's a, of, there's a lot of other things going on historically. If you look back, when I mean, you had black dogs and like those strange mm-hmm. little yeah. green children that came up from the sub- supposedly beyond, like underneath the earth or whatever. Because we, we've tracked down a lot of local residents there who have had uh, all sorts of things and, and are only just now coming out and, and now, of course you know, this needs this some of it is impossible to check. Uh, and uh, healthy skepticism and 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 uh, good sense must uh, reign. But the, so the sheer number of witnesses who've come to us about this is is really quite remarkable. So, and, and we sort of specialize in looking at pa- what might be pan paranormal phenomena in certain areas. Uh, near us in Massachusetts, we have the so-called Bridgewater Triangle, which has been an interesting. <laughs> Bit of work, so, yeah, that's, a weird so, so th- th- that's the reason for the question. Uh, this in the UFO community, that seems focus, to be. And, and do you, you guys, in terms of your research, the focus of the activity of the phenomena that's centered around a particular place? Is there any any p- possible, you know, geological reason for that? That's you know, right. We do find that areas with. Uh, go ahead, man. What? Oh, oh, you look like you were going to say something. But th- we do find that areas with sandy soils. And we, we live in a coastal state here, of course, and, and um, high water tables, clay, for some reason, seems to um, affect in some way. And, and we, have, we uh, have worked with a, passed away, unfortunately, but we have worked with a hydrologist, a soil engineer on, on these things. And they seem to uh, conduct, for lack of a better term, Various fields, um, and I can, again, it's uh, who knows, but I mean that that's there seems to be a uh, the, the, the use of electromagnetic field meters. We sometimes criticize it, but I found that, that well in the early nineties I got a, a digital one, and that's really the only gadget that I've ever used, uh, except for obviously cameras and recording equipment. And this this uh, meter, when it would go into the negative range, mm-hmm. and the, the polarity on the field was reversed. Things oh. that seem to correlate with with things uh, things occurring. For example, I'm, I'm thinking of a whole. I mean, I mean, you're supposed to be the guest. I, I, I don't mean to be talking so much here, but your opinion is valuable to us. Uh, I'm thinking of a house in Uxbridge, Massachusetts, right in our listening area, okay. where, where I had uh, been. In, this is early '90s, and uh, this you could feel the electricity in the air, and of course, an electrical an electrical uh, electromagnetic field, electrical field surrounds an electric current. Mm-hmm. And this thing was coming toward me, and you could feel the electricity, and the current seemed to be just in the middle of the air. It didn't seem to be, because, you know, as you know, that can be, be, be yeah. produced by radar arrays 10 miles away and things of this kind, which is why I don't particularly trust it. But the thing went into the negative range, and it seems to correlate with, uh, uh, shall we say, uh, our particular theory is multiversal. It seems to um, correspond with... Uh, Junctions between, if you will, parallel worlds. That's uh, that's the best way I've heard it described. So that's again one explanation. That we you, it's just interesting. As soon as you start describing, you're talking about it being pan paranormal, and you start describing not so much the, the geology side, but when you started talking about EMF, the, the name that just sprung to mind as you were talking about this is Budden, of course. Oh. Okay. Who, who talks about a link between haunting and poltergeist cases on the one hand and UFO-related experiences, kind of encounters with aliens, etc., on the other. And just, just saying that, his, his, that there's a common underlying mechanism that happens uh, to do with electromagnetic emissions and ambient fields and that sort of thing. Well, I must say he, he 
he made sense to me. <laughs> That's why. I, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that we uh, we took a look at um, some injuries sustained from abduction uh, victims, and they looked almost exactly the same as some injuries people that have been involved in poltergeist cases have had. Yeah, we sat down with Bud Hopkins. I said, well, you were there too, Bud yeah. Hopkins, uh, one day and many years ago, and, and went through an album of photographs he had. And I said, my goodness, this this is uh, what I've seen in many, not necessarily photo for photo, but mm. this is what I've seen in many poltergeist cases. Uh, I myself was injured by uh, the what was going on in that Bridgeport house. There's a television set that should have smashed from the force of it and hit me in the leg and all this business. That'll all be in the book. But uh, one wonders, uh, maybe there is a great deal more to this that, than we think. Um, maybe it's the context. And I'd like to get your thought on yes. this. Uh, if you see a wispy figure um, moving through a living room or something, you, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you think it's a hot, it's a ghost, but if you see it out in your yard with a disc over it, it's an alien. That kind of thing. Actually, we have to break right now. So, so think about that. <laughs> We'd appreciate your comments um, okay. after we come back. So you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley with our very fascinating guest, Karen O'Keefe, professional parapsychologist and uh, academic par excellence. We will be right back, so stay with us. Hi, I'm Roth Nahr, host of Community Connections radio show that airs the fourth Wednesday of the month at 9 a.m. here on ON 1240. The show is a production of Family Resources Community Action, a social service agency in Woonsocket that helps strengthen families, individuals, and the community. Each month, we invite guests from the community to share news about programs, services, events, and issues of concerns to our residents. Past topics have included youth services, employment and training, and housing and homelessness. For more information about FRCA, call 401-766-0900. Please tune in to Community Connections the fourth Wednesday of the month at 9 a.m. Hope you can join us. We're always here for you, Owen Radio. Welcome back, everyone. And before we get back to our guest, I wanted to just remind you of several of the charities Ben and I have adopted. Certainly, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles. Wonderful work uh, there by Tony LeRae and his, his terrific staff. Very unusual approach, uh, using ancient wisdom, really, as a basis for uh, saving at-risk youth. And the, the results have been tremendous. Also, certainly uh, locally, uh, veterans charity, buildershelpingheroes.com. Rhode Island Builders Association, uh, doing renovations and construction for the families of, who have lost loved ones in, uh, since 2001 in the, the service of, of our country, and also uh, Canadian Veterans Advocacy as well for our neighbors to the north who have been with us in the war on terror from the beginning, and uh, they, there's been a lot of loss there too as well. And uh, they honor their veterans just as much as we do. And Canadian Veterans Advocacy uh, does a lot of legal work and advocacy in the Parliament and in the, the provincial legislatures for the veterans of Canada. So check out those, those charities. So let's get back to our guest, Karen O'Keefe, a parapsychologist from the London area. And uh, before we took our break, we were just discussing uh, the idea of context uh, in these various uh, sightings, uh, provided that they are genuine and this sort of thing. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Karen? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I don't, uh, and context can mean so many different things. So context could be uh, culturally, depending on which culture you're in, you know, what you interpret. If you're in, uh, you know, um, for example, uh, native New Zealand 
culture, Maori culture, you might interpret such, uh, such lights differently to an Aboriginal culture in Australia versus Western culture in, in England or in America. Sure. You interpret each, each the same phenomena but very differently, but also historically you know, it would be uh, interpreted differently. And certainly, even if you look at the, over the last 50, 60 years, there are trends in what people see. And certainly there's trends in terms of what people research and what people report. You know, with, um, I don't think I'd be going out on a limb, certainly within, in England to say, you know, if you, if you go back about five years, the, the trend was with uh, ghostly phenomena. If you go back, uh, 20 years to before I was doing my PhD and kind of around the master's time, there was a trend with um, UFO and um, abduction reports in terms of the numbers. You know, a peak at that time and then a peak in ghostly time. Does that tie into what's popular in the media at the time or is there kind of something more to it? But I think context, I think you're right, context plays a huge effect on it whether it's belief or context in terms of environment and i always give the example based on my research looking at infrasound ah low frequency sound either Ooh. either as a possible cause of haunting phenomena or which uh one of um um, my researchers uh, put forward which i think is a great idea this idea that infrasound might actually be a trigger um for um, mediumship experiences. That's exactly um, what we've been thinking about ourselves. Because it happened in our own house. Oh yeah, that was a lot of fun. In terms of, in terms of infrasound, you mean? I, I believe that's what it was. Uh, we, just briefly, uh, Ben's uh, older brother had a fish tank, an aquarium, mm -hmm. which was, um, well I called it more of a science experiment because he never cleaned it. Strange things were happening in there. Hmm. But the, the pump mechanism was uh, well I'm getting ahead of myself a bit I happened to uh, wake up one evening to a shaking bed and uh, Ben's mom is uh, oblivious but I happened to get up and you know that may, does rather make you wonder it's a common phenomenon and uh, out in the hallway I felt the the whole air was the air was electric really you could feel the tingle on the skin etc cetera, etc cetera. and I said my goodness well alright I'm going to take my own advice and assume that it's not paranormal and do as you have described Karen and uh, worked down the checklist. So I, I got the EMF meter, and it led me right to that aquarium and the pump mechanism, which was putting out 2,000 milligauss, which, as far as I know, was high enough to cause a health hazard. Yeah. So we got rid of that, and uh, all phenomena ceased immediately. So right. I, I thought perhaps it was setting up a standing wave or something that... Uh, and the question being, precisely as you state, uh, is this influencing the mind to experience fundamental or simple paranormal phenomena well i mean to, to give a definition to a standing wave one being one whose major is audio yeah, right. a standing wave essentially is um a frequency that if it is uh emitted at some sort of volume it would hit a surface and then keep bouncing back and forth and it would just create this standing wave no change nothing and then usually if it's at the right frequency it can cause resonations in different mm -hmm. um, materials, it's like if you're playing like a bass or something like that, and you happen to hit like um, like a high E or something like that. I forgot how many cycles per second that is, uh, but like say A440 or something, and you have like a waste basket then in the room with you, and it starts to vibrate. That's essentially resonance. Yeah. There you go. 
and and, so, and, and it's and it's interesting you use that example of the fish tank and, and the possible uh, contraption there or the machinery causing this standing way given that the whole association between infrasound and hauntings comes from you know um, Vic Tandy uh, and his experience in the laboratory where mm-hmm. he started uncomfortable thought he saw a figure emerging to the left and just had this weird sensation and uh, he narrowed it down to uh, a low frequency standing wave of about 19 hertz mm-hmm. uh, that was in the room that was being caused by a new fan that had been put into the extraction system or exactly. air conditioning system in the laboratory um, and of course he started to look at the uh, the literature on infrasound and I think there's one NASA report that he famously quotes reporting and this ties into what Ben has just said the idea that and I'd like to see replication of it because I'm not sure how how reliable it is this NASA technical report stating that at 18 hertz that um, 18 hertz is a resonant frequency of the eye the eyeball so that if there's an 18 Ah. hertz wave that could cause resonance or smearing vibration of the eyeball which would result in smearing which would give that effect of, of seeing shadow out of the corner of the eye it's quite an interesting idea absolutely I know we, we've cited the Tandy case many times in in, in introducing a discussion on that subject mm. and uh, boy we, we certainly are on the same page as they say <laughs> yeah definitely point of view. it's, it's yeah. also interesting that uh, as a caveat with the Tandy case having worked with um, Steve Parsons from Parascience and his work on infrasound um, his very convincing work to show that um, infrasound could not cannot be regarded as a cause of ghostly phenomena um, by any means or to what he tend to found, tend to find in haunting or reliable haunting haunted locations for example Mary King's Close in Edinburgh was that um, infrasound that was present at a location would intensify any already existing experience Hmm. I think that's the key thing so uh, you know on very rare occasions there might be infrasound present and it might you know give somebody an experience but generally there's so much infrasound around because of you know man-made machinery, or because of, even because of things like heavy traffic, oh goodness, possibly, yes. or because of you know the architecture of particular tunnels or corridors can cause it to, and so it can cause it. But but I think the findings are that we're saying that it's not as simplistic as Tandy originally thought, where he was inferring of or looking at the idea that this particular. Um, frequency, I think it was 18.1 or um, approximately 19 hertz, that this particular frequency was responsible for the majority of hauntings. If anything, it would would intensify Mm. the experiences. And and it relates back to what you're saying about context, um, that what's quite interesting is that in my research looking at infrasound, Yes, this this possible presence of infrasound at some haunted locations, and people misinterpreting that feeling of infrasound, the presence of infrasound, as a ghostly presence. But in doing my research, and it also being a musician, I spoke to various um, uh, organ designers who who built organs for cathedrals here <laughs> in Europe. 
And a lot of them were saying, uh, and uh, were saying to them, you know, a, a lot of these old organs in St. Paul's Cathedral or St. Albans Cathedral, to name a, a few, but also quite a few over in uh, Europe, and also um, uh, more modern examples, for example, uh, in Atlanta, is it Atlanta City Hall, I think they've got one, um, where they have a pipe that's an infrasonic pipe in the organ, which means it doesn't actually play because be careful how to describe this, it doesn't actually play a note that you can hear, you can feel the note, so you can't hear the note. Oh. And, so, and so it's saying to these organ builds, what, what exactly is going on? Because the frequency that it's playing at is below kind of our level of hearing. We're not actually hearing a note, and although it's the same process as hearing, we're feeling the note. So what's the point in having these pipes? And a lot of these organ builders were saying, well, for centuries, for absolute centuries, organ builders were throwing these uh, pipes in either to add to the bill to kind of you know mm -hmm. throw in an expensive extra pipe because they're normally huge oh yeah oh yeah or, or they were um putting them in because they added a sense of profundity added a sense of kind of godly presence if they were played as part of uh church music and certainly having been in some of these cathedrals and instructed the organist to play a piece of music and then play the same piece of music with the infrasonic pipe as a part of the bass line, you can understand what he means. The context of it, you're getting the same experience that you might have in a haunted location where you're feeling the hairs go up on the back of your neck, you're feeling kind of a weird sense of presence, a feeling in the pit of your stomach, but because you're in a church or cathedral, you attribute that experience to kind of a godlike presence rather than a ghost that's happened to me i've as it happens i studied organ for nine years and toured many organ cases and noticed pipes like that isn't that interesting i'd forgotten most of that but i'd never heard it put in that uh, in the context of a uh, your uh no your, your i mean discussion. it makes sense it's like if you go go to a movie theater and uh go watch a movie and you have that that sort of um that kind of booming feeling when like there's like some something dramatic going on in the scene you f you feel it you don't hear it it's below the uh, threshold of hearing as they say so anything under 20 hertz essentially yes exactly ha have you done much work with uh poltergeist uh oh, and in the, the narrower sense uh, psychokinesis um not much work no because poltergeist cases certainly within england a few and far between. However, yes, they aren't, uh, and people don't. Very often, people don't find out about them, so they, no. they are, do, do tend to be rather rare. Yeah, rather. I've, I've investigated a couple of claims of poltergeist activity, which um, actually ended up being um, mental health issues mm. rather than rather than a genuine poltergeist case. However, I'm quite fortunate in that when I was doing research for one of the books that I wrote, um, Ghost Hunters, I wrote a chapter in there um, on the Enfield poltergeist. Yeah, I've seen mainly, it. Yeah. Mainly, because, mainly because the readership of such a book is, is a lot wider than uh, kind of the knowledgeable paranormal uh, field that you would normally get from a, a specialist book. You know, we're talking about people who were um, watching Most Haunted on a regular basis. And so it's very, I was very keen to highlight to such viewers and readers key cases and interesting cases that they may not know about because their only exposure to the paranormal world is something like Most Haunted. And so I wrote about the Enfield poltergeist, but 
being a member of the Society for Psychical Research, I was able to talk to Guy Lyon Playfair and Maurice Gross, and certainly Maurice before he passed away, yeah. about uh, the case, um, about Enfield Poltergeist um, case, and also listen to some of the recordings too, um, of interviews, but also um, some of the uh, phenomena as it occur occurred, albeit an audio recording. Um, rather than any sort of visual recording and I just find it fascinating people often say to me you know what's your what's the, what's the most impressive case that you come across and I have to say the Enfield poltergeist is up there you know as one of the most impressive cases the only caveat being I wish I had been there because it's you know, yes, just an amazing case and like you know some of the cases you've already mentioned the Bridgeport poltergeist case and and you know there's a, um, a few other ones as well rosenheim is mm -hmm. another one i'm mm -hmm. fascinating and so there's some classic poltergeist cases in the past the frustrating thing for a parapsychologist like me is uh wanting to have another enfield and not having it yet yes now i i can feel that although somehow um having worked with um in psychiatric hospitals as a seminary student and as a graduate student later in psychology I, never, you know, I, never, I didn't pursue that degree but um, I was going to ask you if you had encountered cases with, with people who I suppose you might say that, that paranormal factors or components were intertwined with their psychiatric conditions Oh I see what you mean yes, yeah and of course I mean Related to that, I guess we could start to bring in William Rolls' idea, mm. which is often talked about within parapsychology, this idea that we're not dealing with um, a haunting-based case, we're dealing with uh, Rum referring to it as a ghost or geist, it's RSPK, um, Recurrent Spontaneous Psychokinesis, which of course is Bill Rolls' um, kind of uh, ownership of that particular term. Sure. And, which, Within parapsychology, you do get um, a distinction. Um, there are some parapsychologists who say that we do need to differentiate between poltergeists and hauntings because poltergeists are, is a case of RSPK, that it is about a, a person causing this phenomena rather than a spirit causing the phenomena. And tied into that uh, would be um, also the idea that the phenomena that's being caused by the person is being caused because of their state of mind. Um, and typically, I know with uh, William, William Rolls' theory, it's, it's to do with adolescence and to do with the troubled mind that's causing this phenomena. But I, it's not a leap to go from that um, and say that if there are mental health problems um, associated around the agent, then they could that could be causing... Uh, the phenomena, mm. you know, a leap to do that. I, I, and I say that with a, with again, I keep using the word caveat, but I say that with a caveat because there are some parapsychologists that do distinguish between the two, um, as if it makes it more logical and more kind of real to say that poltergeist cases is, is RSPK. I think uh, either way, it'll be f it'll be amazing anyway. It's all paranormal, so it's amazing. Oh yeah. And I, the source of it is but I, I think it's too restrictive to differentiate the two I agree so, certainly there are people like uh, some fascinating researchers like Alan Gold 
um, who say that no, we shouldn't dist- we shouldn't distinguish between the two. In fact, you find that there are many many cases where there is an overlap in terms of the sort of phenomena that's described as poltergeist and haunting. So you get both phenomena occurring in cases, you know, and it's and it's and it is too restrictive um, uh, to just to separate the two. Hmm. Uh, and I think I'm I'm more in line with that, to be honest, with the Alan Gould, the Alan Gould and Tony Cornell way of looking at things. That there is an overlap. Okay. Uh, well, we have a rather different opinion of Poltergeist. However, that's for another show. I wanted to ask you before, because we're burning up the hour rather quickly. Uh, we often wring our hands and hang our heads uh, to lament about the future of civilization because of. Uh, the pop ghost hunters, as we call them. Uh, we uh, were at a conference on Saturday. Wonderful, wonderful people. But one wonders if this should be a hobby uh, approached almost as if they were, they were bird watching. Uh, I think it's rather unwise. I've seen much trouble come of it, and particularly when people set themselves up as counselors mm. to people in a quote-unquote troubled home. And I can, yeah. I'm just waiting for the lawsuits to begin. Yes. What say you on all of that? Uh, should people be doing this? Or should it be a hobby? I mean, what's what's yeah, going on? I, I, I com- I'm in complete agreement with you, and it's because of um, that viewpoint um, and me discussing it with a uh, colleague of mine, Dr. Ian Baker, that we came up with a set of guidelines, ethical guidelines for investigation of haunting experiences, that was a set of ethical guidelines for investigators, but also for members of the public to educate them on what uh, sort of um, behavior they should expect from genuine ghost hunters. Um, And it's about protecting uh, the public uh, from ghost hunters, and it may be a controversial thing to say, but I think you're right. We're, we're, we're waiting for the lawsuits to happen. And already in this country, there have been numerous cases of vandalism, of people entering properties that uh, they don't have permission to enter, but also of cases where people have been involved in private or domestic residential cases where they've caused vandalism overnight, or a number of cases where, and I term the phrase, Um, mop-up cases where I've been called in um, to cases where I've had to play mop-up because there may be um, somebody who reports phenomena and then a ghost group goes in and overnight and they they make wild claims and they may have a medium associated with the group who says... I can see the Archangel Michael standing on your stairs and, you know, this is this house is buried on a... Uh, it's, it's situated on a, an old cemetery and, you know, mm-hmm. the ghost here is trying to hurt you and just making outrageous claims. And then the ghost group taking photographs of orbs and doing seances, un- completely unaware oh. that uh, the, the resident that they're dealing with is somebody that has untreated psychosis. Oh. Uh, Yes, and, and and it triggers, you know, it, it exacerbates the problem. Um, and there have been far too many of those cases where um, I've gone in and played mop-up and, and had to deal with the outcome of such uh, unethical behaviour where people just go in and they have no idea what they're doing. And like you say, they, they're overstepping the mark. You know, they're, they're 
setting themselves up as as counsellors, um, as experts, and they are genuinely not that way at all. It's fine for people to take kind of the UFO watch or bird watch type approach um, and do that if they are in public buildings and is part of an organized event, that sort of thing. I don't have a problem with that. That's a very different sort of investigation. But as soon as you step out over that threshold and get involved in private cases and holding yourself up to be an expert and trying to deal with you know people's genuine problems some of these cases might be have have genuine paranormal aspects to them some of them might not but the fact is people claiming that they're experts going into these cases private cases i think is 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 wrong and like you say it's it's a bubble that's waiting to burst at any moment now well exactly people often ask us you know what do we do uh, you know in effect who are you going to call you know um one thing i found in the seminary because this is you know a million years ago you know, the uh the ankylosaurus was grazing on the uh quad you know um the was the issue of um the the uh well clergy uh in those days people would one of the first things they thought of was to call their priest or minister rabbi whatever and uh, some people today would think the same thing but they are not trained i was rather surprised to find in paranormal phenomena or at least in their narrow definition of it perhaps that, I mean they threw me out one year before ordination or, or roughly because of um, my paranormal work they didn't like it but in any case I never encountered any training of any kind in that As in the no. Roman Catholic Church and I believe in the Anglican Church there are certain clergy who are uh, set aside specifically to train in the theological approach to that because you know it, it does come up from time to time but, yes. Uh, well, no. Uh, I I always think it's kind of weird that I talk to some of these people and they're like, "Yeah, we're looking uh, for evidence for science and all that stuff." And I'm just like, "Well, why are you working with mediums if that if that's the case?" It's a, yeah. It's very it's a very odd, um, convoluted way of going around going around. Well, that. their hearts might be in the right place, but you know, there's no academic discipline. There's no peer review, and they don't talk to each other. I, I guess we're talking not not about clergy. But well, maybe they, maybe them too. But mm. but about uh, you know the pop researchers and that sort of thing. Yeah, and it's interesting talking to you two as well, and and Ben's input on the audio stuff and standing. Oh, late. he's but invaluable. The number of people, you know, the number of um, amateur ghost hunters that I hear talk about infrasound and talk about you know the the influence of sound, but actually it's outside of their remit. It's outside of their knowledge. Outside of their training. And, you know, even for, for me as a parapsychologist, a trained parapsychologist, I have not been trained in any way in terms of acoustics. You know, when I'm involved in a case where there is that possibility, then I will consult with an audio engineer or an acoust uh, acoustic engineer, somebody who's a specialist that understands this sort of stuff, you know, and is able to explain what's going on because I recognize that some of this stuff is outside of my remit or is outside of my knowledge field and I just wish I, to be honest I wish that people were a little bit more humble and recognize that that um, there might be areas that they don't know fully about and we've already admitted it 
you know, this evening in terms of physics, for example. You know, we're not physicists and we recognize we might not know everything about physics. And so we'll consult a physicist or we'll consult, you know, a, um, uh, an appropriate book. But we won't try and stumble through an explanation of what's going on from a physical point of view. Oh, well said. Well, Kieran, uh, we are down to our last few minutes. Why don't you tell people about yourself again, about uh, your website, where people can find out more? Okay. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, if people go to www.theparapsychologist.com, you can find out information about uh, my research. I've got some of the papers that I've written on there and uh, try and define parapsychology for you on there as well. It also gives you links to uh, various projects that I'm involved in, um, including upcoming books and also an online school that I've got called the School of Parapsychology, where people can learn about kind of the foundations of parapsychology. And if people want to get in touch and, and keep up to date on, on what I'm doing, I've got Facebook account, uh, Dr. Kieran O'Keefe, and also a Twitter account as well, at Kieran O'Keefe, which I update on a regular basis. So uh, people can keep in touch with me there. And upcoming stuff, yeah, I've got a book coming out later on this year called If I Were a Ghost, in which I ask <laughs> hundreds, hundreds of people from skeptics, debunkers, cynics, believers, uh, priests, scientists, actors, musicians, famous celebrities, what would they do if they were a ghost? And it's uh, initially done a little bit of tug-in-cheek to start with, but now it's revealed <laughs> some quite interesting answers an interesting insight into various belief systems as well. So that sounds fascinating. Uh, well, may we have you back to discuss the book? Of course. Yeah, oh, we'll very good. Excellent. Well, we'll be in touch off the air then. But uh, thank you for a very interesting discussion, and I hope we hope to uh, hope to meet you in October. Okay, look forward to it. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Ben. Oh well, thank you. Very good. So this past Saturday, uh, the uh, April 26th, my dad and I spent an enjoyable day at the uh, first New England Parafest at the Crown Plaza Hotel in Nashua, New Hampshire, and we spoke on poltergeists, met some great people, and we saw our good friend Shane Searway, or Sirwa, or whichever, and uh, we will be, or who will actually be our guest on May 19th here on WOON 1240 AM. And uh, many thanks to organizers Bill Amels and uh, Tom Spitaleri uh, for a great time. And don't forget to visit our website, BehindTheParanormal.com where you can find over 550 free podcasts of, on both uh, WOON 1240 AM and uh, for, uh, for our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special guests and special shows and podcasts and all sorts of stuff. And don't forget about www.newenglandghost.com. And you can find my books on Barnes & Noble Nook, e-reader, Amazon Kindle, Amazon.com, etc., etc., but if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, I will autograph them for you, if you like, and you will also help us keep all those podcasts free. Also on our site, you'll find direct links to the charities we mentioned and several more. And uh, next Monday, May 5th, right here on WOON 1240 AM uh, Radio and we will welcome uh, clinical psychologist uh, Dr. Joseph Gallenberger. 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 Well, I got it, got it right the first time for a discussion about psychokinesis and movement of objects by non-physical means. So you get your questions and experiences to us at paulatbehindtheparanormal.com. You can call in. Don't forget about our, our Facebook page. You can send messages that way as well. We leave you this evening with a thought from American author Robert Louis Stevenson, quote, to be wholly devoted to some intellectual exercise is to have succeeded in life, unquote. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time.
Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.